insider tips, tricks, and things you should know about anesthesia from a nurse anesthetist. Now say that three times fast. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, this is Nancy May from Doing It Best With Elder Care Success. And you know, I'm a little biased here. We are gonna do another fabulous show. And my guest here today is Bobby Jones, who is a retired nurse anesthesiologist. He's a certified nurse anesthesiologist. He actually still is, I guess, but he's retired at this point. And he left after a little over 13 years in that career, as you might expect, not just because he didn't love what he did, because he did, but burnout, as many of our medical professionals are going through these days, especially after the last couple of years with COVID. You know, I think my question, once we get going, Bobby, is going to be, how do we even know if somebody has burnout and they're jabbing us with a needle or sticking us with a knife? But we'll get down that road anyway. All the details and information on Bobby's background will be in the show notes. Today, we are talking about drugs and anesthesia and things that put us to sleep so that we don't see that doctor or person coming with the scalpel saying, all right, we're going to slice them open from the top to the bottom. Yikes. Don't want to do that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so welcome, Bobby. I'm glad you're here with me today. And I'm glad that I'm not on the operating table while we're talking. Yeah, no, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being on my show as well. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Absolutely. We'll put the show note links to your show that we did together. Yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. It was. So let's jump into really what is a nurse anesthetist? I say I can't. I've tried this several <laughs> times. To, I can't get the nurse anesthetist out, but nurse anesthesiologist. Yes. So usually I'm pretty good at pronunciation, but for some reason this TH thing is, you know, I, maybe I'm Barbara Walters in another life. And... <laughs> But so what is this versus a general anesthesiologist and how does it work? So a uh, nurse anesthesiologist and a physician anesthesiologist are different in terms of the type of training they underwent to be able to do the things that they do. So a physician anesthesiologist got an undergraduate degree, maybe in biology, maybe whatever kind of science background. And then they applied to medical school. They went to four years of medical school. And so that is their actual medical training that they got was four years of medical school. And then they go into a general one-year internship. And then for anesthesia, they do three years of anesthesia-specific training. Okay. So that's above and beyond their residency as a physician or MD. Is that yes, correct? So they, they do a generalist internship for one year after they graduate with their medical doctorate. And, and so they have that... That's mandatory for everybody to go through. And then you choose a specialty, okay? So, so certain specialties will take longer, some will take shorter periods of time. An anesthesia residency typically takes three years for a medical doctor to go through. That's kind of interesting because when we're on the table or a parent or a loved one is on the table to be operated on or go through, I like how the medical professional now sanitizes that term operation to a procedure so that I probably make us feel a little easier, right? It's marketing. Yeah, well, it depends on the type of procedure. So a colonoscopy is not a surgery. Okay, that makes know? sense. So, so it just depends on, on the type of procedure that you're talking about, whether or not it is a true operation or not. To double back, um, a nurse anesthesiologist is somebody who became a nurse through four years of education, got a bachelor's degree in nursing, and then they went on to pursue either a master's or now it's going to be doctoral entry to practice, mandatory across the board in the next couple of years. And so that's a three-year program. So a medical doctor gets four years of medical training, one year of internship, and then three years of anesthesia training. 
a nurse gets four years of nursing training, then has to practice as a nurse in a critical care setting for a minimum of one year. And then they can apply to an anesthesia program where they then get three years of anesthesia training. So so it's not dissimilar. No, it's not at all. And in fact, in many states across the country, nurse anesthesiologists can practice and do the same things that physician anesthesiologists can do. It comes down to what this, how the state laws are written and how the practice rights are written for nurses and physicians. And those things are determined. It's, it's a political game. And so uh, a lot of people don't know that when it comes to politics, physician anesthesiologists and nurse anesthesiologists are often fighting each other for practice rights. And it's it's a money thing. It honestly is. It, it comes down to, you know, hey, we both are trying to get the same piece of the pie. So we're both trying to secure our own practices. And so certain states are more restrictive for nurse anesthesiologists. Certain ones, particularly out west, are much more open. Before we got on earlier today, I was doing a little research on such laws and discovered that 15 states have actually removed the fact or done away with the fact that a nurse anesthetist or nurse anesthesiologist has to work as required to work under a physician so they can work independently without the physician in the operating room or the procedure room, whatever that might be. I would imagine if you're doing a procedure like we talked about earlier, a colonoscopy versus open heart surgery, that you can work with a very comfortably and not be worried about anything, although I think I'd probably not be worried about much of anything anyway, based on your description of the amount of training. If a nurse anesthesiologist was there when I was going through a colonoscopy versus open heart surgery, it's it's similar training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did a heart rotation. Now, did I come out of school and then start doing hearts? Uh, no, you still need more training and, and whatnot. And a lot of anesthesiologists will do the same thing where they might do a, an extra residency in a heart rotation after even doing their full anesthesia residency. So there are different ways you can specialize in different areas. You know, when it comes down to it, as a nurse anesthesiologist, we're never in a room without a physician. And, and a lot of times when, when they would say physician supervision is often the term that's used. It was something where the, for instance, let's just say with colonoscopies, okay, the gastroenterologist would be quote unquote supervising me as an anesthesia provider. They don't really know much at all about giving anesthesia. That was not their training. So why would they want to take on that level of responsibility for my practice as an anesthesia provider? They're actually doing that procedure, whatever that is. So it's like, how much do you want to give the right to a doctor to multitask? Exactly. And, and that's the thing is it, it was a, a liability issue that a lot of physicians just didn't want to be a part of. And we're completely liable as nurse anesthesiologists for our own practice. That's the thing about it is there's no reason... Uh, in many instances, to have physician supervision whatsoever, we're never going to be in a procedure room without a physician. So it's kind of outdated terminology that's been used to kind of honestly line the pockets of other professionals. You know, it is what it is. And that's not to say that both physician anesthesiologists and nurse anesthesiologists can't work very, very well together. The two of them, because there has been this butting of heads from time to time, have actually served to each make the other profession that much better over time. And so anesthesia is safer than it's ever been, and it's still changing and growing just as the overall medical profession is. The business of healthcare is what it comes down to, right? And ultimately, as the patient or the overseer of a patient, somebody who's ill that needs the help and support, whether you're a POA, medical directive, any other sort of guardian, whatever that might be, knowing how to ask those questions is critical before any procedure. Other than my own experiences, a couple of times I've had an operation for various reasons. It's five minutes before they put you under. Somebody says, hello, you know, my name is Bobby. I'm going to be your anesthesiologist today. Anything you have allergies to, anything you don't like, uh, do you get sick, you know, blah, 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 blah. Thank you. We're going to put you to sleep now. Boom. That's it. Now, to me, before I knew what I know now, I thought, okay, you know, I guess the doctor's selecting the right person, but that's not necessarily the case. They may be appointed somebody or they have a series of other professionals that they are more comfortable working with, but the patient really should, or the patient's family should 
be able to at least know who that person is. And even if they're under their insurance plan, because sometimes that happens. We've had that issue. All of a sudden, this procedure happens and you find out that the anesthesiologist is not underneath the insurance plan. You get a bill for $10,000 or whatever the case might be. Like, that's a problem. So do you ask a doctor, say, listen, I'm going to be going under. I'd like to know who you're using. Can I interview? Can I have a discussion? Who is their name? Let me check them out beforehand. Is that something that most people do or should do? So as far as that's concerned, it's something where, like as a provider, I come in at the beginning of the day and I get my case list. You know, I'm, I'm assigned to a particular operating room for that day if I'm working in a facility with, with different operating rooms, okay? So I'm assigned to all of the cases in that room that day. Typically speaking, like they're not going to just throw somebody who doesn't have experience in those kinds of cases into that room without any kind of help. They're not going to let you get into that room and drown. That's not something that's typical. Okay. Typically, teams work very, very well together. And there is a lot of collaboration going on between all of the team members to make sure everybody's on the same page and everybody's comfortable with the plan of care. So there's a lot that goes into it before we actually talk to a patient. Because a lot of times I'll be in an operating room and I'll be working with the same surgeon for multiple cases. Now, I know that if I'm working with somebody who's removing gallbladders, then I'm putting patients fully to sleep that day. But there are different levels of sleep. There are different levels of anesthesia. We may be doing a nerve block. We may be just giving some light sedation to get you through a particular procedure. So there's a lot that goes into it. And a lot of times we'll, you know, because as an anesthesia provider, there is production pressure. Right. I mean, it's just getting the numbers in and out, just like anybody right now. Can you do an operation in 20 minutes and then get them out to the next one? Or Yeah, there are times where if I know I'm in a room with the same surgeon and we're doing different types of procedures that might have some nuance to how the anesthesia needs to be done, I may be discussing that with them in the middle of a, a current procedure. You know, I might be discussing the next case so because I need to be able to prepare and get my medications ready. So I'm going to stop you right there. I want to ask a question. So you're in the middle of, of doing a procedure and operation with a surgeon. I'm out on the table. You're now having a discussion about the next body that's coming in. How attentive are you to if something goes wrong, typically? Oh, very, very. There's, there is no doubt about the ability of us to to take on the multitasking. If there's something going on that is critical, we're not discussing the next case. We're not dis- I'm not getting ready for the next case, okay? But what people have to realize is that there is a lot of things in this profession that are relatively routine. We talk about it, it is 99% smooth sailing and 1% sheer terror. And we get paid the money that we do because we know how to handle those critical moments a heart goes erratic, the blood pressure drops, um, somebody yeah, goes yeah. into shock, whatever might happen, right? Yeah. The anesthesia process, uh, putting a patient to sleep and then having them under and then uh, waking them up, a lot of people liken it to flying an airplane, okay? So the moments uh, that require the most attention and the most adjustment are takeoff and landing, Right. But when you're flying at 10,000 feet, you're there monitoring the situation. Now, you may have some turbulence. You may have to adjust your height based on what the air traffic controller tells you. And it's no different in anesthesia. I may have to give more pain medications because I see that the patient is responding to something. I may have to give more of the anesthetic gases to make sure that they're staying, you know, as asleep as they need to be. And I know people are always terrified about, oh, I'm, I'm going to be on the table and I'm going to be awake and I'm going to remember. And I don't mean to shortchange anybody who has had that experience, but there are times where there are expectations that are set and people just think I'm having anesthesia. I'm not going to remember anything. And there are times where we're putting you under a certain type of twilight anesthesia because we don't want to put you fully to sleep. We don't want to have to put an endotracheal tube down your throat. We just want you to maintain your breathing on your own and be comfortable. So you may hear some noises in the background. You may hear some discussion going on. And that's completely normal. That's good to know because it's kind of frightening, right? You've got other people who are responsible for your your life or your death or trying to save your life. Earlier, when we first started the podcast, I had a friend who is a hypnotherapist and she works with anesthesiologists in the OR, done 
like thousands of operations to test if you can do hypnotherapy in conjunction with the anesthesia. So you reduce the amount of anesthesia, especially with older people or people who have other physical illnesses that could cause, you know, a higher percentage of risk. Are you seeing that? And does that really work? I trust her because she's my friend, but I don't know outside of the scope of her practice and where she is up north, whether that's something that even hospitals are looking at. Because to me, if there's less chemical in my system or my dad's system who may be older, then there's a lesser concern of cognitive impairment that could be permanent damage to a brain that might be a little bit more fragile mm-hmm. because of age and inflexibility yeah. that, that might be going on. First off, yes, it does work. There are plenty of scientific studies that have studied the effects of hypnotherapy or you know suggestive dialogue and, and music therapy. And she doesn't do it alone. I mean, she works in conjunction, right? So there's always anesthesia there. It's just, you know, moderating it, right? But what it's shown to do is it reduces the amount of overall sedatives you need and pain medications that you require for your particular surgery. Now, with that being said, that was something that when I went to school over a decade ago, um, because I've been out of practice for three years, you know, when I went to school back in... 2009 to 2011. That was something that we already knew then. So why don't people use that? It would seem, especially in an older population, that's more gentle on the body other than it's an extra person in the OR and another expense that may or may not be covered by... You, you just answered your own question. Okay, so it's it's a political... It's Well, it's not political. It's financial. It's It's something that... And it's not just because it's an extra expense. It's because... It can possibly, you know, it's, it's, there is a fear of change when it comes to certain routines in any profession. Okay. Certain things are going to change over time, but what we have found is that it actually takes approximately a decade for something that was found in research to actually really hit. In the medical profession. That's very interesting. In the medical profession. Yeah, it does. And that's because it takes a long time to change hearts. No pun intended. (laughs) So if, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, but, but that's the way it is. And yes, this is something that can work. I've thought about, Hey, you know what? It would be great to have just some earbuds in somebody's ears so that they can listen to calming you know, meditation kind of music throughout a procedure. How do you figure that out? Okay, are they bringing their own earbuds? Are we supplying earbuds? Are we going to have to buy new earbuds for each patient that comes in? Do we use headphones? How do we sanitize the headphones afterwards? You know, so there's there are a lot of logistical things that are involved with it. Hospitals just, they're not worried about figuring it out because they're making money the way it is right now. You know, that's the thing about it is in hospitals across the country, it, the the swing from care model to business model yes has been pretty drastic uh, and I've seen it in my you know since I started my first degree was in business administration so I automatically came into nursing with an eye towards business and so it would actually frustrate some of the nurses around me when they would complain about certain working conditions and I would come at it from a business perspective and say well look the way this is happening makes complete sense if they can get a similar product for 10 cents instead of paying 15 right and it's something that you're using over you know like or if they can reuse a certain product uh, whereas they were using disposable products before there are different expenses involved with everything and hospital systems are trying to reduce their costs mm-hmm. we've seen a lot more burden placed on providers because staffing ratios have gone down. Right. Yep. Because, you know, administrative costs have gone up. The amount of administrative personnel needed to run a hospital now because all of the laws are so convoluted and all of insurance is so convoluted. The administrative personnel, the, the amount of that has skyrocketed whereas the amount of staff has remained relatively constant. The, the people who are direct hands-on care with patients. The hospitals have more expenses than ever. But it's not because they have more actual boots on the ground nurses and physicians and and therapists out there. It's because they have to cover all of the administrative things when dealing with insurance and the government. Well, and now you've got a greater population that is older or turning 65 and older. 
So more, I'll put in quotes the term customers, patients, right, coming into a hospital system because they say the greatest cost in healthcare services or the health care pressure is at birth and towards later on in your life. And I think what they said, mm-hmm. after the age of 65, there's a, the average is at least three comorbidities per person, you know, meaning any particular kind of healthcare issue that's requiring some level of significant medication, which is amazing that we've got to that place because we think that we're all so healthy and we're taking, supposedly taking get better care of ourselves. But it sounds like beyond just the, the average, the number of physicians and providers staying the same, it's the added pressure because now they have to serve more people. I'm wondering whether, and, and that's just a population, mm-hmm. you know, statistical yeah. fact, that's that's not necessarily that you know more people are going and needing support because more people are coming to the states or anything else but it's just it's a population mm-hmm. it's just a you know a number that way are there better ways that we as family members who could be advocate for a parent or a loved one who's going through this process and and maybe worried to be there to support and get the right information that we need from an anesthesiologist or a doctor or anybody else that might be potentially or working hands-on with somebody when in fact there's a procedure or an operation or something that we're worried about that they may not necessarily have the time or ability to do their research on. You know, where do we start and what do we ask? First off, I want to talk about the perspective of the healthcare industry, okay? So Medicine as a profession is not holistic. It is very fragmented. It is very specialized. You have a a patient, you have a a loved one, uh, a parent that you're caring for. Mm -hmm. They may have diabetes. They may have a heart condition. They may have kidney problems. Any number of things could be wrong with them. Right. And what, they're not seeing one doctor for all of those things. They see specialists about these particular things. I see where you're going down the line with this. It's communication with There's everybody, communication right? with everybody. But I think what's important to understand is what the limitations of each of those specialties means for your loved one. Talking to your cardiologist about kidney issues is not going to get you anywhere. Because they don't work with the kidneys. They got their training back in residency, but they specialized in cardiac stuff. They specialized in taking care of your heart. So they will Mm -hmm. focus on taking care of your heart. And they may prescribe you with a medication that when you go talk to your kidney doctor, your nephrologist, they say, oh, no, you can't have that drug because it wrecks your kidneys. Now... Most of the time, these folks aren't necessarily talking to each other about these prescriptions. So you'll get a patient that comes in, and they're on 30 different medications. And you look at it, and there's redundancy, and there's, like, they don't need, you know, to be on all of these things. You can cut that down drastically if you have somebody who can look at it from a holistic perspective. And that's where your normal um, primary care physician can sometimes help with that. Because they are more tasked with looking at the whole part of you. But it still goes back and forth. So this is a really good point. My husband went through this a couple of years ago, and he was put on a a heart medication. He went to his cardiologist and said, well, my GP said, you don't need this anymore, or you need a lower dose. And the cardiologist said, well, that may be the case, but it's only 10% of people who don't need it. So... And my husband said, so what happens to the other 90% who don't use the pills anymore? He said, well, they tend to die. (laughs) (laughs) He said, what part of risk are you comfortable with? Yeah. And my husband said, "Um, I'll talk to you because you are the specialist in the heart. The other guy is not. He's a generalist, which is Mm -hmm. fine. But having that discussion to make the decision was like, the choice is yours. You know, die now or die later potentially, or wait and see if it works. So it's the old risk tolerance. And it can be hard to get these groups to really communicate with each other because with more patients than ever, there is less time for each patient. And so getting, you know, uh, let's say an orthopedic surgeon to talk to your cardiologist, it's hard to do because you know what, that, that surgeon is in surgery. 
So, and that's, you know, we talk right. about the multitasking. I mentioned that earlier, how I, we're talking with our surgeons during a case. Like, mm-hmm. surgeons are getting paged in the middle of surgeries and answering questions for other patients in the middle of surgeries. That's something that is, is, wow. it is the norm. That is what happens all the time because there's just not enough time in the day. So that's when mistakes happen. I would not say that that is is when or okay. why mistakes happen. Mistakes can happen for many different reasons. I I would say one of the things that is a problem is the amount of hours worked at a time. So studies have shown after eight hours of working in anesthesia, that's where you go numb. mistakes can start to happen. Yeah, it just you you start to have a lack of focus, mental and physical. It is documented yeah. that. After eight hours of working, that is when the preponderance of mistakes starts to rise. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that it's astronomical by any stretch of the imagination. It's not. But we, we see it in, you know, with firefighters. Firefighters work 24 to 36 hour shifts, you know, and sometimes they'll work right. at 48. We'll have anesthesia providers. Yeah, but yet, wait a second. So truck drivers, think about what happens on the road. Truck drivers... Mm-hmm have greater regulation on how long they can drive and how long Mm -hmm. they have to stay off the road and sleep than our healthcare system providers do, which is really frightening. Uh, Particularly in rural areas. You know, some of these places, they don't have, you don't have a lot of physicians clamoring to live in a a town of 2,000 people. Those communities still need help. And that's where nurses and, and anesthesia, nurse anesthesiologists and nurse practitioners and nurse midwives, we help bridge that gap in many instances because we live in some of these communities and we can do many of the same things. And, and so instead right. of having uh, a mother who's getting ready to give birth, should she have to drive two hours to the nearest hospital to, to give birth? Or should she be able to go to her no. local hospital that's 10, 15 minutes away and be able to give birth safely. So there are a lot of different issues. And again, that that comes down to each state and how they handle things individually. Your states that have more rural communities, less big cities, tend to give more practice rights to these nurse practitioners and and nurse anesthesiologists because they have to. You, You can't just not have that. But in that instance, you may have anesthesia providers that, hey, you know what? They're working for a week straight, then they're off a week, you know, or they're taking call three days in a row. So they may work a full day and then they're on call that night. Now, typically in rural settings, you're not getting slammed. So it's it's not as bad. There are plenty of cities where people are taking on call and, and you know, they may be on call for 24 hours and they may work that whole time. Yeah, no, we've, we've got neighbors who are doing that. They'd be on for like 16 hours and then, you know, off for two or three days. And they just they just load up the hours so that they could yeah. get vacation time and go on cruises and do other things. And they're getting paid double time and overtime. But I'd be a little nervous as a patient when somebody's working 16 hours straight. And then so there's a good question. Physicians do that a ton because a lot of them, they, they don't have regulated hours of when they're working or not working. They are serving their patients and they view it as a calling like, hey, I, I have to be there for my patients. You know, I mean, I worked with a gentleman. He was 70 years old. He's a surgeon, one of the best surgeons I've ever been around. And he loved surgery and he loved going to France and he loved good food. And that was it. Like he, his life, you know, he was doing what he loved and you could tell it. And so he viewed it as his role to take care of patients. And so he would be up, crack it on, and he was regularly known for having uh, office hours until midnight. You know, so you think about a guy wow. who's coming into surgery at seven in the morning, and then he's working Exhausted. until midnight. But it was something because it was what he loved, it energized him, you know, and, and he was able to keep doing it. But again, is that the safest way that we can do things, um, maybe not. Yeah, that's an unusual person too, no matter what your profession, even if you do love it, there's a point when the mind and the body just does give out. Oh, sure. And when physicians are called, you know, when they're on call from home, they'll be dead asleep at 2 a.m. and get a page saying they need to come in and do surgery. So now they've got to wake up and and try to get going. and, And so you're getting somebody who's maybe not at their best at that time. But it's just because we have such a shortage of providers. It takes a long time to train providers 
to provide these services. Yeah, and it's expensive to to do so. I think uh, NYU. I'll, I'll, I'll back up and I'll say there's a certain percentage of people who want to become doctors where they would become general practitioners versus specialists mm -hmm. because there's such a need for the GPs right now versus specialists, people going to specialists because yeah. that's where the money is, right? And that's where the expertise is in a particular area. So what they were doing, and I don't know if they're still doing this, I'll have to double check and put it in the show notes, that they were offering to pay 100% of the education for those that would go to medical school as a general yeah. practitioner and stay there. So that was that was pretty interesting, and and then New York, upstate New York, was actually at one point uh, I don't know if they're d still doing it, but paying these physicians, these younger physicians, to go to New York State, upstate New York, in the rural communities versus staying in the cities because again they just didn't have the number of providers that that they needed or even good ones. I'm going to back up just a little bit, and, and I I want to keep this fairly tight because we could talk on forever. Although most people will go into a hospital for a surgery or procedure like that, what is the, the fear or the danger of actually doing a surgery in one of these out-surgery facilities? You know, so it's not affiliated with a hospital, but it's just, I call it a manufacturing plant of knees and joints and ankles or heart replacements or valve replacements or meniscus, since I had that done. I know that one. <laughs> so I've worked in a lot of outpatient settings. And... Um, I can say that the vast majority of them are very safe. You've got great providers, particularly on the anesthesia side and, and the physicians themselves that are doing the procedures. These are, in general, very safe facilities to have things done. There are always outliers. There are always the physicians who don't have practice rights at the local hospital, and so they open up their own clinic because they can practice on their own at their own clinic and they run things they run things very cheaply. For instance, I was working in a plastic surgery center. I, I worked there for two days. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Joan Rivers, who died in an outpatient facility. You know. I'm not even going to touch that situation with 10-foot pole. That was very different. There's a lot of things that went wrong with that. And it, ha and it wasn't because it was an outpatient facility. Okay. It was not related to that. I worked at a, a center. You get there and you're trying to set up for your day. And I'm not seeing the regular emergency drugs that I would normally have access to. So what do you do as, a, as an anesthesiologist? So what I was able to do is I was able to find some of them. And the ones that I felt comfortable, as long as I had these, I'm good to go. But they were in a, a lesser amount than I was accustomed to. And I spoke with another provider who had worked there providing anesthesia. And he said... Well, what you need to do are just snag some drugs from the hospital you work at and bring them with you. Well, that's kind of illegal. Yeah, but as a provider, I got to protect myself. I got to protect my license. So am I going to go to work without those drugs, you know? That's the thing is, as certain things have progressed, you know, it's harder to do that. It's harder to just take medications from one facility to another, and, and rightfully so. You know, we should be documenting some of these things. So you, you brought up an issue. You brought up an issue. They said that if a doctor does not have the rights to practice at a hospital and they set up shop elsewhere, I'm presuming that that's important that a doctor has a right to practice at some medical hospital versus just being at a at an outplacement. And, and how do we even... It can be. I don't... And I don't want to speak in absolutes there, okay? Because I'm sure there are plenty of people like... There are plenty of physicians that have plenty of work at their own clinic. They don't need to work at a hospital and deal with all of the politics and shuffling with other people. The reason they have their own clinic is because they're tired of waiting for room at a, a hospital to try and fit on the OR schedule. There may be plenty of folks like that who they have their own clinic. Trust but verify still, just like anything. Yeah, trust but verify. So, so anyway, to continue on with this story, so I took care of my first patient, taking her to recovery. Typically, when you take a patient to recovery, there is a nurse there to take care of them, a PACU nurse. Well, no. And, and so I took my patient into this room. There was a, a woman there who was going to sit with the patient, but she was not trained in any of this stuff. She was a perhaps a medical aide. She did not understand what the pulse ox reading meant. You know, the oxygen levels at the Like, I sat with that patient. Because I was not going to leave that patient in the care of somebody who could not take care of them. And so I delayed the next case. And I did not make my surgeon very happy. But I was not going to leave my patient until I felt comfortable 
that they were all right. And I was pressured to not do that. That's where, like us as providers, we have to protect our licenses against a lot of different fact, you know, forces that are trying to push us that production pressure, you know, because it is about making money. But not everybody would know that that's important. And not everybody would do what I would call the right thing is what you did. So it sounds like, well, I would say the vast majority of anesthesia providers would do that. They would do that. They would recognize that situation because it is drilled into us to protect our license because we have to protect it against threats. Well, no license, you, you, you lose your business, right? I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, and, and that's the thing is like you learn when it comes down to lawsuits and things like that, that surgeon that you were buddy-buddy with is going to protect themselves. Not you. Yeah, they'll throw you under the bus. Yep. They will throw you under the bus in a heartbeat if if it protects them and their business. Got it. So that's where you have to be very protective in anesthesia of your own practice. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't make a whole lot of friends that day, but I my patients were all safe. Yeah. And the families were probably happy. Yeah. And so and of course, every anesthesia provider, every physician has their own comfort level with different things according to how they were trained. And, and that's the thing is there, you know, I worked with plenty of surgeons in the hospital setting that I wouldn't let them cut on my dog. You know, like it's just one of those situations, but you're muted. I cannot say anything about that to a patient. So I couldn't talk to the anesthesiologist ahead of time, do my research. I have some question about the doctor, but I think the anesthesiologist is great based on what I figured out and pull you aside before and say, so Bobby, you know, on the QT, what's your honest opinion of, you know, Dr. Smith? If I want to keep my job, yeah, I say, well, you know what? Their patients seem to be very happy with them. Oh, I'm sorry, but that sort of freaks me out, right? Because you know on the inside what's going on. I guess the moral of the story here is that you absolutely have to do your homework on any Mm -hmm. physician or any surgeon or any anesthesiologist or any provider, period, no matter what. And it can be very hard to do. That information is not easy to find um, because you will often find people who had very good experiences with a particular physician. And I don't mean to to be ageist here because, uh, like I said, the the 70-year-old gentleman that I worked with, he was a magnificent surgeon. He was one of the best neurosurgeons that I worked with. But, you know, some of the other older surgeons that I've worked with, there were a couple in particular that, again, you know, they they were not up to snuff. Eventually, they get weeded out. Eventually, they do get pushed out. The word of mouth starts to spread and, and patients aren't happy and they're not getting referrals from other physicians because the other physicians know... They're not going to put their reputation on the line either. There is a natural selection to this. It's not always as quick as some of us might want it to be. We could become a victim, unfortunately, too. And and according to, we had an attorney on a, a while back who was talking about doing research on doctors and hospitals. And, and I explained that a local hospital here, I had spoken to a retiring CEO and said, look, and I know that there's at least two doctors, maybe even three, that I would say should probably not be practicing, period. They had great reputations because a good bedside manner. But as far as actual practice, mm-hmm. like scared to death from our, you know, our personal experiences and what I'd seen happen with others who had been patients of these individuals. And so I said to the CEO, can you fire these guys? And he said, no, we can't fire them. We have to wait till they retire. And to me, that's a total cop out. It's an, or until they kill enough people that we have a case against them to say it's a liability to the facility. That is frightening to a family member, especially if you're going under an emergency situation and all of a sudden mom or dad's had a heart attack or a major you know, aneurysm and we don't know what to do and they're rushed into brain surgery or, or a heart surgery or mm-hmm. something else. And we don't have the ability to you know, verify that we're actually working with mm-hmm. the right person. We have to assume that the hospital is assigned the right person and not doc, doctor death. You know, I hate to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not always about like life or death. Okay, that's, that's not the only two options that, that there are when it comes to a good surgeon or a good outcome. Okay, sometimes it's just about the level of complications. You may have a surgeon who can do a procedure in two hours and another surgeon will take four or five. That's a lot of time under anesthesia. It's a lot more time under anesthesia. 
it's a lot more time where you're exposed to potential, you know, to an environment. And, and of course, these are sterile environments. We do the best we can to be sterile and, and all. But there are still risks. The idea is to first do no harm. Like, that's what we all want to do. So the quicker we can get in and get out and keep it efficient, that's the best way that we can do things for a patient. It doesn't always run that way. And sometimes, you know, like the thing is, people do tend to think of this as like, you know, you're just going to go in and take out my gallbladder. Well, it's not just as easy as it looks. And not every patient's anatomy is exactly the same. And complications can arise, even with the best surgeons. Humans are fallible. You know, medicine is not perfect. And you've probably seen like not every provider is built the same way. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses. Some folks are much, much better at a certain thing than they are at others. The joke, you know, for us was, hey, C's get degrees. And, you know, I mean, the physician who who got by on C's is making just as much as the physician who got straight A's. But I'll, I'll say this, just because they got C's doesn't mean they're not as good of a physician as somebody who got A's. I've seen plenty of clinicians, they got straight A's, but like socially they can't work very well with their team and they have problems with the actual practice because there is an art to what we do. And, and if you can't figure out that art, if you're constantly like looking, okay, well, this drug is going to do this and, blah, 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 and you're, and you're just going off of, you know, pharmacology or whatever, you know, you're not reading your patient, you know, you, you have trouble reading people. So you have trouble reading your patient. It can be, it's just not, as good of a situation. That being said, yeah, the devil is in the details, as they say, right? You know, it's what it yeah, comes down to. Yeah, but that's why continuing ed education has become such a big thing in the medical community, because it used to be like, hey, you you go and you get your your certification, and you don't ever have to test again. No, I don't like having to take tests, but you know what? If it helps me stay on top of the latest stuff that I need to do, and and you know, it keeps my skills fresh and it, it, it makes sure that I'm providing the best care that I can to patients. How can I really complain about having to do that? And especially if you're committed to your profession, you should want to be yeah. always on that, that cutting edge, excuse the pun. So I'm going to, I want to sort of wrap us up here. I'm hearing this in, in the course of our conversation. The primary thing that we can do, it sounds like, as a patient advocate, a family member, or even for ourselves is really understand every team member that's at play at any point in time mm -hmm. that's working on us or a family member or a loved one, whatever that is, and make sure that communication is happening properly, that you understand what one is saying and hopefully saying to the other. And if they're not, at least you have that information so that you can ask the questions and verify the fact that the cardiac surgeon actually knows what the the general physician GP is dealing with, or if you've got, or yeah. you're dealing with an eye surgery, so now a sudden you know heart and eyes make guess what you know maybe they do work together or the brain. It's where our bodies are one ecosystem, and ideally we have to look at the healthcare providers as part of the system that protects that body, right? Yeah, communication is the big one. I was going to say, are there let's say like three key points? that you can quickly say these are the major things that we need to worry about when dealing with anesthesia or an anesthesiologist? So so when it comes to anesthesia, um, and, and, you're, and I'm going to specify about uh, elder care here, okay? Fine, thank you. What you should understand is that there are certain drugs that can have a lasting effect on mentation. Now, we know that as anesthesia providers, and we do our best in certain patient populations to avoid them. So, for instance, one drug in particular called Versed. It is an anxiolytic. Uh, it is an anti-anxiety medication that causes you to not remember what's going on around you. The goal of that is because we don't want you to remember what's going on in surgery. So, we, you know, we'll give it to you. And then as it takes effect, you are no longer worried about your surroundings and you don't remember what's happening. Even if you are you know, awake and looking around, you're not going to remember it. So you're not going to have some of those harsh memories of being in an operating room and, and stuff like that. Right. Okay. In the elderly population, we either give reduced amounts of that or we don't give any at all. And if we have a patient who already is having or displaying memory problems, we likely will avoid it. And what's the name of that drug again? It's called Versed. Verset. Okay. Okay. So we'll put a link in the show notes so people know about it and can ask questions. And it's a very common drug. 
But if you have a family member who has, who is already having cognitive issues and memory decline, let your anesthesia provider know that because then we'll just, we will avoid that drug and there won't even be a discussion about it. Like we, we wouldn't have to worry about giving that drug. We can perhaps give something else that's not going to have that kind of an effect. Great. Okay. The other thing is, you know, sensitivities to medications, letting us know Mm -hmm. if, if somebody has a sensitivity to, to pain medications, because, um, now there's already a movement, uh, in the anesthesia community for opioid free anesthesia. We use a lot of different adjuncts. The the pain pathways in the body are multi-layered. They are complex. There are many different receptors that can affect pain. So what we try to do is we try to use nerve blocks and we try to use different types of drugs other than opioids because they can have an adverse effect in people. So uh, if we can get you through a surgery without having to give you opioids, then that's that's a great thing, you know, and, and we can keep your your pain under control still with these other adjunct therapies. It's gentler on the body, I would imagine, an aging body that may not necessarily need as much. It can be, but not every surgery is a candidate for that. Not even most surgeries are a candidate for that, but it's something to inquire about. You also have, you know, nerve blocks are our best friend when it comes to the elderly population, because what it allows us to do is take care of your pain while also not having to give you such heavy sedation. To keep you a little twilight, a little like chilled out, you kind of know, but you don't know. Keep you a little twilight, yeah. So that's the thing, you know, if we're not putting you fully to sleep, you know, that's the thing to ask about is, hey, what is the expectation for the anesthesia here? Are we are we going fully to sleep or putting an endotracheal tube in or, or whatever? Or are we doing nerve blocks and, and giving lighter sedation so that the recovery is easier? You know, it does take longer for the elderly to recover from anesthesia. So that's something to, to expect. And sometimes there can be memory problems for a period of time afterwards, depending on the type of anesthesia. Well, and that's true of any age, really, right? Yeah, it is. It is. So it's not just the elderly. It's just more pronounced. In the elderly and you've population. got somebody who may, they may not have memory issues. They may be totally cognitively strong, but um, yeah. because of the anesthesia, they now are physically weaker. And so getting up could potentially mean an accident or a fall or something else that people don't want to go through and then cause other complications that you don't want to deal with. Yeah. And that's the thing to keep in mind too, is that after a surgery, after a procedure, there is, there is a lot of push to get patients yeah. out of the hospital. You know, we got to we got to get you up and out of here, up and out of here. The elderly may need a little bit more time. So being an advocate, if you don't feel like, you know, because you know your home environment better than anybody, you know, you know, the environment that your loved one is going back to better Mm -hmm. than anybody in the hospital does. So if they are trying to rush, 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 get you out so they can get this room open for the next patient. Say no. Okay. You are the one who, who has to stand up and say, my dad's not ready yet. He, he's not. What they'll do is they'll put you in a wheelchair. As long as you can get up and into your car, yeah. you're good to go. Now, what happens when you get home? Your, your dad or your mom can't, you know, get out of the car, yep. can't walk to, you know, if they're living on a second story, any number of different things. If they have, a, you know, five steps that go up to the house. You know, so there's there's a lot um, to do and making sure that they have that care after they get home. I, I think that's a big one. You can refuse discharge. Yeah. Yeah. But as as a medical community, we don't do a real good job of focusing on the home environment for a patient that they're returning to. That's where you you can really be an advocate for your loved one is making sure like, okay, well, it's getting harder for them to manage steps. We need to put in a ramp. Yep. We need to put handlebars uh, in different places of the house so that they have something to grip and steady Not just themselves. in the bathroom. Yep. Yeah, not just in the bathroom, but it may be around the kitchen. It may be around the living room, you know, where they're going to go sit down and, okay, well, are they having trouble getting out of the recliner? Um, how do you, how do you mitigate? Yeah, so, that? and discharge to a rehab facility is also not always the best because sometimes a home environment may be better if in fact, you know what you're doing and you have the support and you've, you've done your homework to yeah. really, you know, I, 
I joke and I said, I, I, I still do this now for others. I'll go into Home Depot and I look at Home Depot um, like I'm shopping for elder care stuff because <laughs> so, there's yeah. a lot there that can help us um, yeah. and we don't need to pay a lot for it. You can have, um, there are occupational therapists out there who can walk through your and home do an assessment. and and do an assessment and, and give you tips on, hey, here are the things you need to do to make sure because, you know, that's that's what occupational therapy does. They deal with the activities of daily That's living. great to know. The physical therapist is going to tell you, okay, well, here's how you recover by doing these exercises and yada, yada, okay? Occupational therapy can come in and teach you how to put your shirt yep. on, you know, now that you have something going on. Or, or, you know, they can give you the tools so that you can put a sock on by yourself, you know? So there's, there's different things, you know, that, that they can help you out with. And that's really, that practice is focused. It's very helpful. And you can get that from any of the home health, well, the home uh, visiting nurse agencies. Usually it's covered under Medicare yeah. um, or Medicaid or a lot of insurance companies. If you're bringing somebody home, they'll do that and do an assessment. So uh, that is something that I highly recommend that people take advantage of. All you have to do is ask. And it's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. So thank sure. you so much, Bobby. This has been great. As I, like I said, we can go on for hours. Um, but podcasts don't go on for hours. Well, maybe they do, but not ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, some do. But, uh, you know, they're, they're reading audio. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And there's a there's so much information out there. I will have a link to Bobby's information, including additional pieces of information that could be helpful to everybody here who's listening just so that you've got it and you you know some of the questions to ask as you keep going forward because if we don't ask we don't know and that's when accidents happen so on a positive note (laughs) we're doing it best with elder care success and thank you bobby it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me now before we go As I've always said on some of the other shows, there are a couple of things that we can do here to help not just ourselves, but many others that we love and care for. And that's sometimes just giving somebody a gift of love. And this gift of love I'd like to ask is, or to share, is a link to the show. It's really easy and it doesn't cost you a dime. And that's even better in this economy. So give a free gift to somebody that you love and give them a link to the show. So that's it. We'll see you soon or we'll hear you soon. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright, Caremanity, LLC.